Hello and welcome to Who's Truth, Who's Power, a six-part podcast in partnership with Bant Centre for Arts and Creativity. I'm Suzanne Allen, a cultural thinker, and I will be exploring leadership and other topics through the lens of Indigenous wisdom. I'll be talking to some experts to give us some insights into how Indigenous and First Nation wisdom can help us all consider why thinking about power from a non-Western perspective could help us, our communities, organisations and our wider society. Today, I have the pleasure of meeting with Rai Moran, Associate University Librarian at the University of Victoria. Rai, welcome. Uh, It's always such a joy. I feel like we've been on a bit of a journey together now and I really welcome the audience to this conversation. I'm going to start because obviously no one knows our history. Can you just tell us a little about who you are, what do you do, where are you, and how do we know each other? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thanks for having me on to your uh, very important show here. Uh, my name's Rai. Uh, I am currently living in the territories of the Lekwungen people. Uh, who occupied territories since really time immemorial on the south end of what's called Vancouver Island today, which is a large island on the west side of Canada, just kind of across the pond from Vancouver. Uh, I personally live in the territories of the Wissanic people, who, is all, who have also um, called those lands home since time immemorial. I work at the University of Victoria. My title here is the Associate University Librarian Reconciliation. And we know each other through some shared work that we've done uh, both with Barbican and the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity, where I uh, was faculty for uh, a number of years. Uh, exploring these very important concepts of truth and reconciliation and power and how we know what we know and all of the important work that we're all trying to undertake as a as a global family here. Cool. So uh, thank you. There you go. That's a context to how I know Ryan. Actually, I'm going to jump straight in. We're going to be talking about reconciliation today in the context of who gets to tell what a truth is, whose power we've been talking about in a previous podcast, what truth is. I'm going to just jump in straight away and say that when I, when I met all of you at Banff, this idea of truth and reconciliation, like it had my head spinning because for those of you that don't know, I'm based here in the UK. I was born here. And the very idea of truth and reconciliation around any topic, whether it's family, whether it's in the workplace, especially in the workplace, around society, around groups of people who may not have had voice before, reconciliation is a word that I would say has barely been heard here in the UK. And there's a lot that we can at least hear that indigenous wisdom, wise practice, if those terms aren't familiar to you, jump back to some of our other podcasts, can 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 kind of get us to maybe think a little differently. So Rai, can you explain to us what, what is meant by this notion of reconciliation? 
Okay, what's meant by reconciliation is is still a very loaded subject here in Canada. Uh, and I would say it's probably a loaded subject uh, world over, but I'll maybe just frame it up a little bit in terms of the theory first, and then we can get into the specifics of it. So these truth and reconciliation processes are intended to be uh, a tool that is in service of transitional justice. Transitional justice is a concept that is generally articulates a an attempt by nation states to move from a state of conflict to a state of peace or renewed peace. Uh, transitional justice and restorative justice are interrelated as well. So restorative justice is typically a practice that occurs at the individual level um, wherein there is an effort to both bring about a, a, a justice-making uh, process that restores or establishes good relations at the end of it. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that good relation uh, is immune from uh, sort of uh, forms of uh, uh, punishment or compensation, but it does make the effort of uh, restoring some degree of, of harmony or or good relation uh, at, at the end of the process. Now, here in Canada, uh, as a colonial uh, state, I think it's very arguable whether or not we are going back to something uh, or whether or not we're trying to create something that has never existed before. And I think it's fair to state that despite some... Um, examples of positive relationship between Indigenous peoples and settlers that generally from the outset, the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in this in these lands has been fraught and has been mired in a lot of fairly uh, unethical to deplorable actions, um, including all manner of uh, murder and death and notions of racial and cultural superiority and just uh, a, a vast overreach by the state into the lives of Indigenous peoples. Reconciliation in the context of Canada then becomes um, quite complex because we are attempting to untangle ourselves from a very deeply embedded uh, set of colonial histories, colonial legal processes, colonial um, structures. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself signaled a number of very important things that we need to consider in our context here. The first is that they said reconciliation is the establishment and maintenance of mutually respectful relationships. So that there says that we're not going back to some kind of, you know, fairy tale time when everything was all good, right? But we're actually called upon to establish respectful relationships between each other, between our, our various nations that we have inside of Canada, and ultimately with the land itself. So establish and maintain those relationships. So keep those relationships good and ongoing over time and respect being at the heart of that. In order to do that, then what we have to do is reject a number of fundamental notions that have been plaguing us as a society. One of those notions that we have to throw out right off the hop was the idea 
uh, of what's called terra nullius or the doctrine of discovery. Terra nullius is this idea that was used by uh, colonial states to justify occupation of lands that they deemed to be empty. Terra meaning land, nullius meaning nothing there, right? There's no people, there's no cultures, there's no languages, there's no identities, there's no politics, there's no healthcare systems. Therefore, we as settler societies get to just steamroller in establish our own structures of law and governance and basically start to exploit the natural uh, resources and earth that is present in these lands and create untold amounts of harm on the inhabitants of the land in so doing. So we have to throw that idea out. And that is an example, as I talk about throwing out ideas, that's a big part of the process of decolonization that all of this is enmeshed within. The idea of rejecting many of these deeply embedded colonial ideas of relationship, of power, of governance, of structure, of how we do things in order to enable the establishment and maintenance of respectful relationships at the individual level, so between individuals, and more significantly, I would say, at the structural level, how the state is actually in operation to or interfering with the inherent rights of Indigenous peoples to be Indigenous in their lands here. You know, as you've been talking, I've uh, tried to be silently typed. There's so much in what you're saying. And, you know, it's very easy to get in this conversation, especially if this isn't part of your community and be like, ah, oh, this is interesting, but it doesn't apply to me. And sometimes people hear this word decolonialization and they're like, mate, that has nothing to do with me. But I just want to throw something out to the people listening that actually the idea of people and places being colonized has a direct impact on how everybody lives at the moment it affects the structure of our com of our countries it affects the structure of organizations and so i want to go back to something you said the establishment and maintenance of mutually respectful relationships including between people and the land and so I suppose if you if you can apply that, listener, and think about how that could apply within your community or within your organisation or within wider society, I think we can begin to see then that having talked about truth, reconciliation becomes super important. You cannot just pretend things didn't happen and you have to go some way to redressing the balance. So I guess my question for you, is reconciliation by its very nature restorative? And what's achieved when we do reconcile? Hmm. I think it, uh, reconciliation has the potential to be restorative. Um, but, you know, I'll just borrow the words of um, our the, the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in that Reconciliation in the context of a personal relationship can mean, uh, for example, if you if you take about think about a, a relationship between two partners, like maybe a husband and a wife, or a husband and husband, wife and wife, whatever it is, um, you know. So there's a conflict that happens, and there's some sort of crisis in the relationship. Reconciliation can mean both coming back together, 
right? And working through your differences and saying, we're going to, we're going to stick through this or reconciliation can also mean an agreement to separate as well, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to mean like some sort of togetherness. It can also mean choosing to recognize that whatever the structure that we're in right now isn't working and that the the inherent rights of self-determination, that is to live one's life in a good way and to chart one's own future in a good way, have to be present in the conversations at all time. So if the structure that we're in does not enable that self-determination to happen, which is an inherent human right, then we have to look at, you know, reconfiguring that relationship. So on a theoretical level, I suppose, it means that, you know, there are many things that need to be questioned and considered and potentially new structures that need to be um, examined, new mechanisms that need to be present in society in order to enable the, some of these inherent fundamental human rights of self-determination to, to, um, to be made possible. Uh, yeah. So. You know, thank you. You know, when we were chatting before we started this, you said something and you, you said, you know, we know this, all humans are born equal at birth. Society doesn't have a right to infringe on that. And I can see that direct link between all of the work, um, all of the conversations we've been having through these podcasts. And so I guess if... If we say that, that all humans are born equal at birth and society should not infringe on that, the question becomes, through reconciliation, actually we're now beginning to understand this is a societal question, but it's also a question for organisations and individuals, right? This isn't some big, just political conversation. What can organisations and individuals do really to reconcile because what you're really saying is how can reconciliation be a, a tool in which to bring about equality is that is that a fair way of looking at it yeah i think so i think you know that the as we look at reconciliation here in the context of canada at least how it's being shaped here and and let's be clear like it's not like this word is not um, quite heavily loaded here as well. There's lots of people that have some very uh, serious apprehensions about the even the notion of the word or the use of the word um, and question it on a critical basis, on a regular and ongoing basis. But what what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here has said, at least about reconciliation, is that it has to be a rights-based process wherein human rights themselves have to be a primary driver of the reconciliation process so we can't reconcile in the absence of human rights there there can be no reconciliation unless we are willing to and and committed to recognizing those fundamental and foundational human rights that one we're all born with two that no government or other actor in society has the right to remove from you and that are both interdependent and um and um and uh inalienable uh, so 
that means that we can't start the conversation about reconciliation until we fundamentally recognize some of these fundamental truths. Humans are born equal, right? Society doesn't necessarily enable that. So now let's talk about that fundamental equality. Uh, individuals have the right to non-discrimination based on their, you know, ethnicity or their race or their, um, uh, their gender, so on and so forth. And in the context of Indigenous peoples, then there are a number of additional rights, not additional rights, there are a number of specific articulations enshrined in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that are intended to shield Indigenous peoples from the very specific way in which Indigenous peoples are attacked uh, in um, societies world over. So that rights-based shielding or that rights-based commitment to ensure that these foundational fundamental principles are always present in the conversation are a necessary precursor to be able to start to move towards more meaningful, respectful relationships. Because in the absence of that, the relationship can't even be respectful. If you don't believe or you don't recognize that that group or that entire community or nation of peoples has an inherent right to be who they are, then you can't even begin to 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 um, to have that because it's always going to be in the absence of that, uh, you know, uh, one group's effort to exert their will onto another group, and that's not what respect is all about. The respect is about mutually respectful cohabitation. I'm really moved by those words because it comes down. And it comes through to this central tenant that actually you can't have any conversation unless you can start from understanding that human rights are central. You can't have truth. You can't have reconciliation. You really, if we cannot start every conversation, thought and action from this perspective that human rights are core, there is no real reconciliation to be had. And I think for me in the work that I'm doing, which really has been around asking what is power, like where does it reside in our brain neurologically? And and my question for that is, really why do we seek power this is almost this is the flip of it the flip of it is let us start from this understanding that we are all equal and we have a right to be treated equally and when you look at that and you think about if you started from there how would organizations change the way that they interact how would hierarchies change? How would we change how we speak to each other? How would we change how we bring up our children? How would we think about that in terms of what happens when you bring the idea of the notion of reconciliation into parenting? Like it's such a powerful topic. I think we've only got like a couple of minutes left 
I think for 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 the audience for whom this isn't this is a maybe a different notion you know certainly for people here in the UK you have a truth and reconciliation commission as a black British person born in the UK I just spend my whole time uh, trying to even talk about truths for my parents when they came to this country we haven't even got to reconciliation but but for those of us that are thinking about this outside of an indigenous community in these last few seconds that we've got what would be your advice what can people do that doesn't feel like you're trying to take on the burden of the whole world what what can we do as an individual yeah I mean, I think so much about um, where we can find strength and where we can find allyship in all of this work is understanding that, again, if we adopt these human rights lenses uh, to our our collective work, so we understand that human rights is everybody's business and that the interdependent nature of human rights means that you know, when we protect the rights of others that may be different than us, we're also protecting our own rights because human rights are not something that can be sort of piecemeal, piecemealed out uh, to certain people. It's not like only some humans are human, right? And that's what our problem has been in society. We've had these structures that have said, oh, only certain people, and it's primarily been white people, and for a long time it was specifically white men, have rights, Right. And that's what enabled things like slavery and enabled, uh, you know, horrific things like the residential schools to happen here is, is that only certain groups of people had rights. So we have to start with these very fundamental principles of human rights. We have to understand that when we protect the rights of others that may be different than us, we are protecting our overall human family. And I think we have to really uh, breathe life into what the Universal Declaration on Human Rights uh, has said, what mechanisms like the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, what the rights of the child say, uh, all of these really important mechanisms that we have, and and spend time like reading those materials, visiting with them, um, thinking about uh, the histories of them, and then and then the opportunity then is is to start to see many of the great conflicts that continue to um, exist uh, both in the past and and in to the present as framing those in uh, in through the lens of human rights and so often what society tends to do is is it, it tends to label people that are fighting for human rights as troublemakers right and really what we need to do fundamentally is to see human rights advocates as being solutions to problems. And we need to see them and value them in society and put statues up about them uh, and, and uh, honor their hard work of doing still the uphill work of protecting and promoting uh, these broad human rights frameworks in society. As as humankind you know we've been we've been fighting for human rights for a really long period of time and there's many pathways that this has taken it is still very much an uphill battle though because we are coming from times and places where human rights were not broadly recognized and we only have to look at our you know our really 
awful um, pasts to, to see the absence of those human rights. So we need to understand them. We need to visit with them. We need to be able to articulate them. We need to be able to adopt them as fundamental lenses that are present in all conversations at all times and all actions at all times. See these as being the floor of what is in perhaps the the non-negotiables of our of our society and then work diligently to breathe as much uh, force and and life into those rights as is, as is, as is possible never forgetting that our our individual human rights can never come at the expense of the right of all life on this planet to live and to share this this earth with us so our our own humanity, our own needs as humankind cannot come at the expense or cannot continue to come at the expense of our plant and animal uh, relations on this planet. Um, we have fundamental, critical, hard work to do there. Right. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to say thank you. What a way to end uh, this, this, this conversation. I'm going to leave the audience with this. You know, if you're thinking about reconciliation, if you're thinking about um, all of the topics under this umbrella of whose truth, whose power, what rights do you have if you're listening? And in any conversation or action, what would happen if you considered the rights of the person you're interacting with? Rye Moran, thank you so much. Um, where can people follow you? How can they find you? Well, I'm out at the University of Victoria's and uh, I'm usually just a short Google away. So you can give me a Google and see what pops up. <laughs> Thank you much. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a joy and a pleasure um, from Canada to London and beyond. Right. Good evening. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. And this has been Whose Truth, Whose Power. If you'd like to hear more from my conversation with Rye, you can tune in to us exploring another topic in the following episode. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. But hey, one last thing. If you want to find out more about the work I'm doing on power, catch me on my socials. My handle is at Aline and A-L-L-E-Y-N-E-A-N-D. For now, bye. Whose Truth, Whose Power was produced in partnership with the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity and Rai Moran, Associate University Librarian at the University of Victoria. All six episodes were funded by the British Council, Farnham Maltings, the High Commission of Canada in the UK and Canada Council for the Arts. A massive thank you to them for funding us and enabling us to do this. The podcasts were hosted and created by me, Suzanne Allen, and produced by the super awesome Isaac Hustable. They were edited by Ruben Huxtable and project managed by the fabulous SJ Martins. For any information or more information about the topics discussed today, head over to allaboutpower.com or aleanand.com. Or if you fancy the socials, we are on at aleanand. A-double-L-E-Y-N-E-A-N-D. Thank you so much to everyone involved and thanks to you for listening.